We are in the, the final stretch, the last message of our five-part series of eschatology. These, uh, these five truths that are meant to shape your view of, uh, of the last day. Um, I come to this time and I, and I realize it's the, the last message and, and in my heart, what I want to do is speed up, but I know that what we really need to do is just kind of settle down. And so this morning, the goal is just to kind of look at Romans chapter 2 and, and spend some time looking at this passage and, and seeing the truths that the Apostle Paul will uncover in this passage and then how it applies to the end times. We have been looking at Christ. That's been our goal this whole time. Not, not to look at the pieces of the puzzle as it were, the, the details of eschatology and kind of poking through and trying to identify how these pieces fit into place, how they line up and how they create this picture. The goal has been to look at Christ. The goal has been to, to lift up and to draw attention to the wonder of who Jesus is. And as we come to know Jesus throughout the pages of Scripture, we really come to have a, a confidence in Jesus to do what Jesus has promised to do through the course of history from Genesis to Revelation. And that Jesus will be preeminent. Jesus will be the sovereign king at the end of time by whom every knee or uh, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the goal. The goal of our time together is not to fill up our hearts and our heads with more information, but to fill up our hearts and minds with truths about Jesus that make us want to worship. That's been the goal. So this morning we come to our passage. I'd like you to look at that with me. Do all of you have your Bibles open, right? To page 940 or your apps open so you're looking at it for yourself because I'm gonna ask for a little bit of interaction here. Uh, I want some, some congregational involvement, so don't be afraid. There, there are three truths that we're gonna see in our passage today. I, I think that they're pretty obvious and you're, you're able to pick them out as we, even as we read through it the first time. There are three truths that I want to draw your attention to, three truths that Paul wants to bring to our attention today that will give us confidence, give us encouragement, will give us a sense of terror at what the future day will hold. The first is found in verse 4. Let me read this for us again and then ask for you to, 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 to tell me what comes to your attention. It says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance of patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What do you observe in this verse about God? What are the, what are the descriptive adjectives that Paul uses to help us understand God better? What do you see? I, I, I hear kindness, what I hear over here? patience and kindness. There's also this word forbearance. And there's a reason. There's a goal for patience and kindness. There's an ultimate objective for God's forbearance with a wicked world. And what is the ultimate goal? Repentance. God desires repentance 
for everyone who has walked the planet. And so we open up this passage this morning with an invitation. That's really the first point. There is an invitation. And as we consider and wrap up this study of the, of the end times, all of this has been meant to bring us to the point of recognizing who God is and ultimately leading everybody in this room to a place of repentance. If you have not already acknowledged your need for repentance. Of course, <laughs> those of us who are believers who've come to a place of, come, of, of understanding our sin will, will be perpetually in the, the flow of repentance and confession, recognizing that, that the mercy of God is at ever ready supply for us. But God's invitation stands front and center this morning for us. The word for kindness is the word for benevolence. It's the word for gentleness. It has as its root the charis, which is the, the word for grace. It is the, the kindness and favor of God. It refers to all of the benefits that God gives. There is a kindness, there is a grace. We call it a common grace that everybody on this planet enjoys. What are some of those common benefits that we enjoy as a people, as mankind, as humanity? What can you think of? Some common benefits that everybody on this earth enjoys. What's that? Sleep. Sleep. We enjoy rest. And by the way, that is a gift because on the seventh day, God rested by setting a pattern for us as people that we need this rhythm of rest. And by the way, it is this rhythm of rest that calls attention to the humility of us and the preeminence of him because he doesn't need rest, but we do. We are limited. He is unlimited. That is a gift to all humanity to call attention to the wonder of God. Wayne, did you have one? Uh, life itself. Life and breath and being. The, the ability to sustain life and to enjoy the day-to-day -day, um, pleasures of this life, right? It's good. What else? Food. Food. Man, my wife and I had an opportunity last night to get out and enjoy some really good food. Isn't it interesting that God could just give us food, we could just stick it in our mouth and it could just sustain life, but we actually get to enjoy flavors and textures and sweetness and bitterness and all of the all of the different kinds of mixes of chemical reactions that are going on in that food it's it's spectacular i i, I i'm so grateful for food what else i saw a hand in the back you were going to say food too do you have a favorite food pizza what a gift from god pizza is a gift from god yes Family and relationships. We have the blessing of the relationships that God has, has given to us. He's built and designed us to enjoy relationships. And by the way, one of the greatest relationships that we can enjoy is the relationship of the body of Christ, the community, the shared connection we have because of the work of Jesus in our lives. Yes. Nature. Isn't nature spectacular? 
We, we get up in the morning and we can enjoy the sunrise. And if you're living on one of the coasts, you can enjoy either a sunrise or a sunset. You can in, enjoy the stars and the mountains and the trees. One of our favorite places to go as a family is the Sequoia National Park. And what a testimony to the greatness and kindness of God in giving to us these good gifts, right? The good gifts of God which are meant to lead us into repentance. Candy. Intelligence. That is both a gift and a curse, isn't it? (laughs) A gift that we can know and access God through knowledge, through his word, that there are things that we can know about him but also the the pride of life that can set us against God. That can be also a curse, but a blessing for sure. Things that we can know, things that we can appreciate. My family, we've been watching a a documentary on on the Discovery Channel, and we were, there's this little lizard that can jump into the water and can survive for 18 minutes underwater because of the air trapped in its scales that move its way up to its head and it can breathe that air underwater. Like, who knew that? That's incredible. It's crazy what God has done, the, the, the nature and design of life. We can marvel in it. It is a gift from him. The, the great, kind gifts of God. This word forbearance is the word patience long-suffering. It's the the word that, that, that indicates to hold back as holding back judgment. That God has come to a place of of creating an obstacle, at least for now, in his way to to keep him from venting what he should be venting in terms of holy wrath and justice and anger on this earth. God's forbearance is a gift to us. His patience is a gift to us. It's all meant to draw us into repentance. So even at the beginning of this message, right at the very start of this message, There's a call, there's an invitation. An invitation to recognize that all of the good things that we enjoy, all the good parts of life that you and I have to experience are serving an ultimate purpose, are meant to serve the, the ultimate purpose of leading us to repentance. We saw that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. We saw that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. That God has promised judgment and his withholding, his forbearance, his patience with us in terms of holding himself back from the judgment that we deserve is not so that he is unfaithful, but so that he can show his patience. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So right at the outset of our time this morning, the question for you is, have you come to a place of recognizing your deficiency before God, your rebellion against God? Have you come to a place of bowing the knee in repentance to God, ask for forgiveness of your sin, and come to enjoy the relationship that God has offered to you through his son, Jesus Christ? A relationship that is only possible because of the work of Christ on your behalf. Paul will say in another place, he says, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. So today, if you will hear his voice, 
do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't take his goodness and patience and kindness for you for granted. Don't spend it frivolously. Don't ignore the patience of God for you. Come to a place of bowing the knee in repentance to God. There is an invitation right here at the the outset of our passage today. We see as we continue to step into this in verses five and six, there's another truth. See if you can help me pick this out. It says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. There's a, there are two groups of people, one that we see in verse five and six, and one that we're gonna see in verses uh, nine to 11. This first group of people, how would you describe them? What are some of the words that the Apostle Paul uses to describe these people here in verse five and verse six? What do you, they're hard. There's a stubbornness. There's a, there's a resistance to the truth that should be so accessible, so known. There is a hardness against the truth. There is a storing up of wrath. There is a spending of themselves in ways that are opposed to God. But God will pour out his justice on the earth. As we see here, that that God will spend his wrath on these individuals who are storing up for themselves wrath for the day of wrath. And the Apostle Paul probably has in mind the great white throne judgment in this case. This, this by the way, is the, the warning that, that the Apostle Paul is coming to you in our text. First the invitation and, and now the warning. And for a world that is drawn a lot of attention these days to social justice, that has drawn a lot of attention to righting the perceived wrongs and correcting the various evils God will come to judge the earth. Justice will be served. And justice will prevail, but it will prevail through the righteous, holy work of God in spending righteous rage on those who oppose him. Last week, we talked about this as it relates to the day of the Lord. This day of wrath or day of vengeance or day of visitation. This day in which God promises to vent his justice on the earth in a physical way. A day of righting the wrongs, of setting the record straight, of making good on his promise to Abraham when he says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In you all the nations will be blessed. This would not only serve as a public vindication of Israel when God expresses his holy rage on a wicked world, but it will also act as a public warning. A public warning for any person or any nation who opposes God's people or opposes God himself. A warning to say, don't you dare touch my people. And a warning that would say, don't you violate my standard. But in the warning, there's also an invitation. Because as God has cursed those that curse Israel, God will also bless those who bless Israel. 
And so while God is faithful to express his uh, displeasure, his judgment, his rage on the earth, throughout history, the discipline has come, judgment has come, empires have risen and fallen. And this is a testimony, a roadmap, a, a signpost to say God is faithful. God will curse, but God will also bless, be in the flow of God's blessing. Last week we saw that the day of the Lord will be a gruesome, bloody, violent, horrific, worldwide judgment of God on the earth. This is, of course, what justice demands. But more than carrying out vengeance on a wicked world who has, who has earned uh, God's disfavor on them, God is going to carry out righteous anger on those who oppose him, not just Israel. Last week we came to this question, has the day of the Lord already taken place? Or is the day of the Lord still future? Uh, the prophecies that the Old Testament prophets predicted, are, are they prophecies that have already come true or is there going to be yet a future fulfillment? And there are three reasons why I believe the day of the Lord is still future. And let me just pose those to you briefly in the next few minutes. First, we notice in the scripture there is a continuing promise of the day of the Lord throughout the New Testament. This continuing promise of the Lord. Of the Lord. We see that here in our own passage in verse five, the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We drop down to verse eight and nine. It says, but for those who are self-seeking and those who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were both, um, both uh, those who, who used the day of the Lord and spoke about this, this future day of judgment. We saw in our passage, uh, as we were working through 2 Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, a mention of the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord, it says will come like a thief in the night. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There is coming a day, still yet future, this day of the Lord, this day of vengeance, this day in which God will exact vengeance on the earth. Jesus himself refers to passages from the Old Testament in Matthew chapter 24, he draws from passages from Joel that speak about this day of the Lord event. And he, he imports those passages into his pronouncement of future wrath that's coming. Perhaps the, in, our, in our text this morning, in Romans chapter 2, we see in verse 5 this description of wrath. This is the word orge, the Greek word orge. It signifies the strongest kind of anger that the, the Greek writings can express. It is the, the fever pitch of God's fury. When his grace has been exhausted, it marks the end of God's patience, his tolerance with unregenerate, unrepentant mankind in this swelling of his final furious anger, that, the anger that he pours out on the earth. Fury is the word for indignation. Represents this agitated, vehement anger that rushes along relentlessly. The root meaning of this word is to move rapidly. 
as a man who's breathing violently while pursuing an enemy in great rage. It was used of Pharaoh as he's pursuing uh, Moses when Moses is, um, is fleeing from the presence of Pharaoh. It is the same word that's used as in Luke chapter 4. Remember the scene as Jesus is in the synagogue? There is the, the opening days of his public ministry. He's speaking to the people and initially they, they're receptive to his message but at the end they're raging against him and want to throw him off the cliff. That kind of rage, that kind of hatred and anger is the same kind of anger, righteous anger that God will spend on that day. Many of the graphic details of this event are recorded for us in the book of Revelation. It describes a, a day of wrath that is still coming. Thirteen times throughout the book of Revelation we find the word wrath. Wrath is not over. Wrath is still future. Right at the beginning in Revelation chapter 6, as the, as the opening events of the tribulation are taking place, all the way to the closing events of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 19, this, this theme of wrath punctuates the pages of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17 says this, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The initiation of the wrath of God in this final event of the tribulation. And throughout the book of Revelation, many judgments that are poured out on the earth are the result of the wrath of God. Most clearly and most obvious are the bowls of wrath in Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16.1 says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Then in verses 19 and 20 it says, The great city was split into three parts, and the city and the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found there is a continuing promise of the day of the Lord we find even at the very end of the New Testament the book of Revelation there's also an extensive use of the Old Testament in New Testament prophecy an extensive use of the Old Testament in New Testament prophecy and that's significant it's significant because this means that what was promised in the Old Testament, while it had an immediate present fulfillment in the day of the prophet that, that, that prophesied, it has yet to be fulfilled in a final and future event. There were those immediate present fulfillments. They were confirmation of the prophet and his prophecies that would guarantee his, his uh, credibility as a prophet but it's also to establish a pattern. The pattern that was set in the prophet's day that those physical, clear, direct, and specific, and public promises, those judgments that would be vented on the nations around them, that the people of Israel would see in a physical way were just the pattern for what was gonna be happening in the future. A public 
clear, direct, visible, specific, working out of these promises in a specific way in the future. Whenever attention is given to the continuing, continuing results of a prophecy in the New Testament, when the word of the Old Testament prophets is lifted and, and imported into the present situation, it is meant to be a signpost that God is faithful. God is faithful. Look and see. Here's what he said, and here's the fulfillment. For example, behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sin. The signpost was marked. The words of Isaiah chapter 7 were clear. And here was Jesus, the, the, uh, the, the banner of fulfillment for that promise. Or he will be great. He will be the son of the most high. And God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Why? Because God promised it. And God is faithful. We could go on to many of the passages that speak of the day of the Lord but there are so many um, uh, allusions or references to this day and references to the Old Testament in the New Testament, but especially in the book of Revelation. Gregory Beale, he and D.A. Carson, they co-authored the book that I referenced a couple of weeks ago, The New Testament's Use of the Old Testament. Well, Gregory Beale has written another book that focuses on primarily Revelation itself. It's 443 pages. I thought maybe I would be able to to, to work through it a little bit and give you some some references so that you could have a a table of reference for yourself. But um, come to find out of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 278 of them draw reference from the Old Testament. God will continue to be faithful to the promises that he made in the Old Testament five to seven hundred years before and God will continue to make good on his promise in the future. One commentator comments that the prophecies of Revelation are built on the greatest key events from the sacred history. These include the creation, the flood, the exodus, God's covenant with King David, and the exile to Babylon. Now that shouldn't be surprising because the greatest moments in history, especially Israel's history, were those covenants that centered on those periods of time and the faithfulness of God to carry through his promise to the end. God will do it. There are 505 citations and allusions of the Old Testament that are drawn into the book of Revelation. 325 of them are from the prophetic books of the Old Testament. Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, and the minor prophets Zechariah, Joel, Amos, and Hosea. It's clear from reading through the book of Revelation, the promises that God made to his people in the Old Testament still stand and are still future. Let me, for the sake of time, just give you one example. And there are several in Revelation, throughout the book of Revelation. Let's move to Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. Turn with me, if you would, there. It's on page 1031, okay? Revelation chapter 6. Let me set the scene up for you as you're turning your pages. The first three chapters of Revelation 
deal with letters to churches. God's warning and invitation to these churches to stand against the difficulties that they're experiencing in their present world. But also hope of heaven and a hope of blessing that will come as they continue to persevere as believers. Revelation chapter 4 then is this scene of heaven. You see this this great throne in heaven and you see this majesty all around and the the 24 elders and the the four living creatures that are around the throne giving homage and and reverence to the one who sits on the throne. In Revelation chapter 5, this scene in heaven transitions now to the lamb. In Revelation chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 it says, I then saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll within on within and on the back sealed with seven seals and i saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals and of course the lamb was the only one worthy and so in revelation chapter 6 the lamb begins to open the seals of this scroll And we see that now in verse verse 1 of Revelation 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, uh, like thunder, come. And one after the other, these seals are opened until we get to Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, the sixth seal. This is where I want to draw our attention. It says, now when he opened the sixth seal... I looked and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood. These words that John is uh, drawing our attention to are coming from places like Isaiah chapter 13 verses 9 to 10 or Joel chapter 2 verses 10 and 11. Joel 2 says this, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw from shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. What the prophets predicted 700 years before is now being reiterated here in these final moments of judgment that God will pour out on the earth. Revelation chapter 6 verse 13, the passage continues. It says, And the stars of the sky fall to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. These words are lifted from Isaiah chapter 34 verse 2 which says, for the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. The faithfulness of God to fulfill his word. This word that is still yet future. We could keep going in verses 15 and 17 that are drawn from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 and 19 to 21. And the list continues of the references and the ways in which the book of Revelation accesses and references and alludes to the Old Testament to say that this promise of God to judge the earth is yet future. That while there was a present fulfillment, it indicated the faithfulness of God and the integrity of 
of the prophet. It was just a pattern. It was just a foreshadowing of what was to come. The third reason why I believe that the day of the Lord is still future is because there will be devastating results during the day of the Lord that will be unimaginable and will render the earth uninhabitable. There's a list of those in your study guide, or a list of those in your, your notes. And I would encourage you to read through the book of Revelation this week. Take notes as you go. It's not, it's not, it doesn't take a whole lot of time to do that. Uh, as a matter of fact, this past week, I, I think I've read through the book of Revelation five or six times. It's not something that will be difficult for you. You can do it in, in just a sitting, maybe 15 minutes or 20 minutes at the most. Read through it and take notes and see the testimony of God in how he will exact judgment and righteous vindication on the earth. But I want to draw something to your attention. The sixth seal that we find in chapter 6, verse 12, the sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, the stars will fall from the sky. Every mountain and island will be moved. And then we move to the trumpets. We have judgments on the earth and the vegetation, the trees, judgment on the oceans and the rivers, the sun again and the moon and stars in the sky. The fifth trumpet, these biting insects that will come and torment the earth. And we notice through the testimony of these judgments, God is beginning to withdraw his kindness. The the uh, common grace of God that we enjoy, the things that we have taken for granted, now God is systematically removing. The good things of the ocean, the good things of a sunset and a sunrise, the, the good things of, of enjoying uh, fresh water to drink and life that is free of torment. God is using the judgments to call attention and a warning to people, especially in the first half of the tribulation, to invite them into relationship, to invite them into mercy. There is an invitation. There is a warning. But then as we come now to Romans chapter 2, in verses uh, 7 and uh, 8 through 11, we begin to see a second group of individuals one group of individuals who had a hard and impenitent heart and in verse 6 it says he will render to each one according to his work to those who by patience in well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality he will give eternal life verse 9 there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek for God shows no partiality this final group of individuals what do you notice about them what catches your eye what draws your attention what do you see about them how are they described what do they desire in verse 7 they desire to seek for the glory and honor and the praise of the Lord in verse 11, again, glory and honor and peace then will be given to them, those who do good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God is one who shows no favoritism. 
God is one who will distribute his goodness and kindness and forgiveness to all who come to him in faith. There is an encouragement that we see here in Romans. There is an encouragement that we find here in Romans. It's an encouragement to those who will believe that peace will be granted to those who pursue peace with God. Paul will move into that a little bit more detail in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Notice, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There is peace that is available, not judgment. There is peace that is offered to those who have been justified by faith. This word justified is to be declared righteous. This word justified is to be um, exonerated from the evils that you have done. This is a legal term for those who would be represented before the throne and somehow the decree is that they're righteous. Nobody in this room could ever rightly experience that judgment, could rightly get that verdict only through the righteous life of Jesus and faith in Christ can we experience that kind of justification. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus measured up to the standard. Jesus ordered his life in such a way that he fulfilled all the law and the prophecies, all the law and the commandments. And because of the work of Jesus for us on the cross, dying the death that we deserved, we by faith can experience the peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul will encourage another group of individuals, a church of Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he, he talks to this church. He's writing a letter to this church, and he wants them to know that while they're experiencing hardships today, while they're experiencing difficulties in persecution from the world around them, they can have hope and encouragement that they will be delivered from the wrath to come, the judgment that is coming. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 says, You became imitators of us, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. For they, and it's speaking of those who have, have observed the, the lives of the Thessalonian church, they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from wrath because Jesus endured the wrath of God on our behalf. We find in Isaiah chapter 53, verse five, it says, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. He endured the wrath of God so that we can enjoy peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, at the end of this letter in 1 Thessalonians, 
We'll draw it all to a close when he says in chapter five, verses one to four, he says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. The Apostle Paul is dry, uh, deriving an argument through contrast. He says, they say there's peace and safety when the day of the Lord is about to come, but sudden destruction is coming on, on them. And they will not escape. But, in contrast, you who are living in darkness, you who understand the impending wrath of God that is coming, you will escape. That's the implication. They will be caught off guard because they're walking in darkness, but you are of the light, as we see in verses five to seven. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk, in ni- um, drunk at night. So walk in the light, walk in purity, be those who pursue the glory and honor and majesty and obedience to God. Be sober and alert and watchful. And he concludes in verses eight to 10. Since we belong to this day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. There is hope for those who believe in Jesus. That as Jesus experienced, he was the focal point of the wrath of God poured out on him because of our sin. He experienced the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could enjoy peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and preservation from the wrath of God on the day of wrath. But only for those who bow the knee before Jesus comes. Because as you look into the book of Revelation, you will see that there are those who refuse to bow the knee up until the point of the beginning of Revelation. And so there are It's punctuated by those who will be martyred, Christians who will be persecuted and killed during the time of the the revelation, time of the great tribulation. That in the middle of judgment, God still shows mercy, but that mercy will still ultimately lead to the wrath of God being spent on them during those days of wrath. Much like those who are put in prison because of this heinous crime that they might have committed. I've had the joy of going into prisons with those who are serving a long sentence. And and the work of God in their life, even in the midst of those consequences, will be kind of the, the same kind of analogy as what you would expect during the tribulation period. That while those who move into the tribulation because of a rejection against God there is still an offer of relationship with, God, with him through forgiveness, but they will experience the same judgment. I want to close with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What are we supposed to do? What is the encouragement for us in the midst of, 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 of this truth? 
Paul will, will conclude his time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by saying, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. And then he concludes with this, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because God is faithful to fulfill his promises and because God is faithful to, wait, to show his patience in drawing people to repentance, the work that we do as believers is a work that God will use to accomplish his purposes on this earth. And we can rest assured that nothing that is spent for the kingdom in this life is spent in vain. That God will carry his work through. God will see it through. God will have his day. Praise him. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the fulfillment of your promises and the reminder through this series that you make promises and you keep promises. And because of the stability, because of the faithfulness and dependability of our God, we can have a work and a confidence in you to carry out the tasks you've called us to and be what Paul encourages us to be in this passage, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labors for you are not in vain. We praise you for energy that is well spent because it's energy spent for the kingdom. May we be about kingdom purposes and may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, thanks for coming today.